Chasing Shadows. Our series Chasing Shadows is a great series, and it's exploring Old Testament happenings that actually point towards Jesus. You know, Jesus stated in John chapter 5, verse 39, that the Old Testament scriptures testify to him. Think about that for a moment. The Old Testament scriptures, they testify to him. The, the, the stories there testify to Jesus. The songs we find there testify to Jesus. The prophetic stuff testifies to Jesus. That's astonishing because that tells us that at one level, there's a level of meaning in the stories that we can gain insight from, principles from, all those sorts of things. But actually, there's another layer. There's another level. And if we can look, we'll see a shadow that reaches all the way up to the cross. That is a, that's an important thing. And today, we're going to look at one of the most unsettling stories in Scripture. Now, life is full of unsettling stories, right? I guarantee you, I could talk to almost any one of you here today, and you've got some unsettling stories. Maybe it's happened in your life. Maybe it's happened in the life of somebody that you know and your family, something you're struggling with. We recently heard of a friend of ours um, who had passed away from breast cancer. We haven't had much to do with these people for a long time. We changed cities and things, but they were uh, dear to us at one point many years ago. She was about my age, an absolute woman of God. Married, had several kids, uh, lovely, lovely lady in her younger years, um, was potentially going to be a model. Ended up marrying this young guy. They had kids. Uh, she had a career. He had a career. Just phenomenal, phenomenal couple. Many years ago when they were about, must have been in their mid, late 30s, they, their kids were still small. She woke up one morning and she just said, she said, I just felt off. So she stayed in bed. And then her husband came through to see why she was still in bed because she never just stayed in bed. And she said, the words came out of my mouth, call an ambulance now. Her husband said, she was, she, for starters, she was never sick. And secondly, she, you know, she was never a hypochondriac. He said, when my wife said call an ambulance, I ran for the phone. By the time the ambulance got there, she was in multiple organ failure and she was unconscious. They got her into the hospital, into Dunedin Hospital, uh, into the emergency area there. She had a, a team of over 20 people working on her. They opened her up and they found three liters of infected fluid in her stomach cavity. She had been totally fine up until that morning. Absolutely bizarre. Over the next five hours, they worked on her and get this, I find this amazing. Uh, Time of death was called three times on her. So it was three times the doctor said, there's nothing, she's gone, She's gone, we need to call time of death. And every time another doctor said, no, she's got four kids, we're going to keep trying. And they keep working on her and brought her back again. And that happened three times in surgery before they finally were able to stabilize her and get her up to intensive care. She stayed in intensive care for months. In the end, she had to learn to walk again, learn to, to feed herself again. And they never discovered the cause for this random infection that almost killed her. Her case was later presented at a large medical conference and was introduced as the save of the year. That's unsettling, right? She loved God, did all the right things, was a blessing to everybody she knew. Why would this happen to somebody like her? And now we fast forward another 20 years with no history of cancer in her family. She got breast cancer and 18 months later, she dies. And you know, it was amazing. Just absolute rock-solid faith in God all the way through. And her husband, just absolute rock-solid faith in God, just trusting that the Lord was somehow in this 
and with them. And it's tremendously sad to hear that she has gone. But it's in moments like this, right, when we get unsealed and we find ourselves asking, how does that happen? Why has that happened to people who love God and trust Jesus and live their lives that way? Well, today we're going to look at an unsettling story in Judges chapter 11. So we go to Judges today and we find Israel once again having abandoned God and now pursuing other gods of the nations around them, you know, despite God's continued faithfulness to them. God would be faithful and, and their fortunes would turn around and they'd go into a season of great blessing and prosperity and then they would start getting bored and distracted and wanting things that they saw in other places and people and cultures for themselves and they would become unfaithful to God. <coughs> God would kind of step back and it would all go south for them. <coughs> Excuse me. And here we are again in one of these places where God is raising up again in response to the misery that his people are in. It's fine, babes, put it down there. Thank you, that's so nice of you. Uh, the misery that they're facing, uh, God raises up another judge or another leader, and this time God uses a man called Jephthah. Jephthah. Judges 11, verses 1 to 8. Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead. His mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also bore him sons, and when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. You are not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, where a gang of scoundrels gathered around him and followed him. Sometime later, when the Ammonites were fighting against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Come, they said, be our commander so we can fight the Ammonites. And Jephthah said to them, uh, didn't you hate me, drive me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you're, in, when you're in trouble? And the elders of Gilead, obviously embarrassed, said to him, nevertheless, we are coming or turning to you now. Come with us to fight the Ammonites and you will be head over all of us who live in Gilead. And as the story goes, Jephthah questions them. He's like, really? Really? You're going to let me rule over all of you? I'm going to be the leader uh, if this happens, and they go, yeah. And so uh, Jephthah, he's a smart guy. He makes sure that the deal is struck at a place called Mizpah. Mizpah means watches over or watchtower. They believe that that was a place where God watched over Israel. And so Jephthah made sure that the deal was struck in Mizpah because he had faith in God. He had faith that God would watch over this if they did it at that place. And so then Jephthah then steps into this role. He tries, interestingly enough, to find a diplomatic solution and engages in communication with the king of Ammon, who had in his head that Israel stole the land and should give it back. So Jephthah gives the king a very detailed history lesson, pleads their case, suggests that he goes away and is summarily ignored. And so, Judges 11.29, then the Spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah. Now this is important. Because this shows us God's favor on his life. God empowered Jephthah. He is God's choice, despite the fact that Jephthah has been rejected by his family. God has not rejected him, and God is going to use him. And this first part is spirit-inspired action. We pick up the scripture. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Ammonites. And now we get into the bit which is not quite so a spirit-inspired part of the story. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. 
You know, we ever made a vow to the Lord? You know, it's kind of like you're in a bit of a desperate place and you're like, oh, God, yeah, God, if you come through, if you come through from over here, you know, I'll, I'll follow you. I'll do whatever you want. I'll go to church. I'll... I don't know if you've ever done that. I know I have. I remember one time I was about 16. Uh, Mum and Dad were out visiting some people who I thought were vaguely dodgy. And they hadn't, but when they hadn't come home late, I, uh, being a classic catastrophizer, assumed that they'd been killed. And so I'm getting ready, all laden with every weapon I can find to go and try and save them. And somewhere in there, I remember going, God, if you just let my parents be alive, I'll serve you my whole life. Like we strike these deals, don't we? We make these vows. Of course, my parents were fine. They just had a great time and got home a little bit late and I felt somewhat foolish. But we make these vows. And this is what Jeff did. He made a vow to the Lord. If you give the Ammonites into my hands... Whatever comes out the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into his hands. So Jephthah makes this weird vow, right? I mean, this was clearly not spirit-inspired. It's kind of bargaining. Usually comes from our fear, usually comes from our doubt, etc., So he says, God, if you'll give me victory, I will give you whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph. Okay, so what's he thinking? Like, like what what do we think? He's thinking, God, give me the victory and I'll give you whatever comes out of the door of my house. So we've got to ask the question, what does Jephthah expect is going to come out the door of his house? Maybe it's a chicken. Maybe Jephthah's got chickens. Maybe he's got chickens and they live inside the house and every time he comes home, they kind of come clucking out the front door to meet them and he gives them some wheat. I mean, maybe it's a chicken and he's like, I can totally sacrifice a chicken for that. That's all good. Or, or, or was it a sheep? Like in his mind, he's going, a sheep. I've got sheep in my house or a goat and they come out and I can sacrifice a sheep. I mean, for starters, what kind of guy has sheep in his house, right? Like sheep in his lounge, like, doing those little, little chocolate balls all over the carpet, and he's got goats in his kitchen, eating everything in his pantry. I mean, seriously, what's, what's he thinking is going to come out the door of his house? Or maybe he's thinking, ah, that bull. Maybe he's got a bull, and what happens is when he goes out, the bull pushes in the back screen door, goes inside, and knocks over all of his china and, uh, and does big deposits on his carpet. And he's like, man, I've been wanting to have an excuse to barbecue that bull for a long time. God, if you give me victory, I'm going to give you that Whatever comes out the door of my house. I mean, what's he thinking? Well, maybe he's thinking mother-in-law. Maybe he's got a mother-in-law who lives with him, drives him absolutely nuts. Every time he comes home, she's out there complaining about where he's been and who he's been hanging out with and she's been home with her daughter. And and he's thinking, oh, this is going to be awesome. And he's like, I can solve this headache. Sorry, mum, I've made a vow. Can I see you in the shed in a minute, please? I mean, honestly, though, what was he thinking, right? And so what happened? Who came out the door of his house? Let's find out. Judges 11, verse 34. When Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter? Dancing to the sound of timbrels. She was an only child except for her. He had neither son nor daughter. And when he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, Oh, no, my daughter, you have brought me down. I'm devastated. I've made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. And then we get this response from her. My father, she replied, you have given your word 
to the Lord. Do to me just as you promised, now that the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the Ammonites. Ammonites. And all the people of God go, what? I mean, this is, this is the part where the story goes places that just don't make sense to us. I mean, his, his daughter comes out dancing, like celebrating God. God's done something amazing. My dad is the hero. He saved the day. His daughter comes out, his only child. And clearly from the scripture, we can see that he did not expect her to come out. And he is absolutely devastated because deep within him, he knows he is a man who will follow through on his commitments no matter what the cost. And his daughter understands this somehow at some level, that she has to die and she submits to it. I mean, this story in Judges 11 is disturbing and difficult to understand. I've never heard it preached on. And I remember when I was um, studying at university, I did a paper on women in biblical texts, and this is the only time I've ever heard this story taught on, and it was used as evidence that, the, that God is misogynistic, that the Bible is patriarchal in the extreme. I mean, because you have got to remember, this is in the Bible, right, this story. This story elevates this guy who's going to kill his daughter in the name of the Lord. His daughter isn't even given the honor of being named. We are not told her name. We never know who she is, and she's only described in two terms. Firstly, as his daughter, and secondly, in terms of her cultural sexual value, she is a virgin. That's all we're told about her. And as the story plays out, she asks her father for some time to get away and be with her friends and mourn together because, I mean, her future's gone. Right? She's never going to... Any of the dreams that she had as a young girl aren't going to come to pass. She's not going to marry. She's not going to have kids. She's not going to pursue whatever it was that she no doubt had in her mind to pursue. So this is what she does. She goes off and mourns and spends time with her friends for a couple of months, and then she returns. And while no details are given, she is killed, obviously, as a sacrifice to the Lord. And it's such a weird story, right? It's such a weird story that when I read stories like this, I go, there's got to be something I'm missing. And I don't know about you, but when I find myself asking, what is it that I'm missing? It's usually because I am missing something. You see, we have this father, right? Jephthah. We have this father who is rejected by his own, who was called on in some way to save everyone. And he has a daughter, his only child, who is required to lay down her life, which she is willing to do, despite the fact that she has done absolutely nothing wrong. But she is willing, understanding that it must somehow be done for the saving of all these people. Can anyone see the shadow of Jesus here? The shadow of a father who was rejected by his own, who was called on to save everyone, and he has a son, his only son, who is required to lay down his life, which he is willing to do, despite the fact that he has done absolutely nothing wrong, but he is willing, understanding that it must be done for the saving of all people. See, this strange story that most people shake their head at in disbelief is in fact a prophetic foreshadowing 
of the God who so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. And look, it must be stated. We must be clear that God did not ask for the sacrifice. In fact, throughout Scripture, God is categorically against child sacrifice. This is, this is not what God was looking for. And I think it's wonderful that here again we see the authenticity of the Scriptures. Judges is not full of perfect heroes. It's full of imperfect people, used by God despite their imperfections, sometimes doing foolish or even unbelievable things because they are human and sinful. Think of Samson, think of Gideon, think of Barak, and now Jephthah. But here is where I believe it is most powerful. You see, it is not Jephthah who is the hero of this story. For it is not Jephthah who is the picture of Jesus for us. (laughs) It is this young, unnamed girl who reveals Jesus to us. This daughter, this young woman is an extraordinary picture of what it is to hold your life and your future with an open hand, surrendered wholly to God, trusting completely, even if it should be taken away. And and isn't this the great testing point in life, team? You know, when something comes our way we didn't deserve, when something happens to us or near us that shakes our faith to the core because it doesn't fit with the way we thought things were going to go. You see, I believe Jephthah's daughter is a picture of the person who loves and follows Jesus and chooses to trust God and submit to His will, even when they hear that maybe they have a terminal illness. Or when they hear, maybe that they will never get well. Or maybe when they realize that perhaps they will never marry. Or maybe when they realize that that is going to be impossible for them to ever have a family. Or maybe when they realize that they will never walk again. Or maybe when they realize that they have less time left than they thought. You see, she is the person who was told she has two months left to live, and still in that moment, chooses to trust him and submit to his will and accept it. And we've got to ask the question, right, was she happy about this? Well, Scripture tells us she went and mourned for two months with her friends. I mean, this is a woman grappling with loss. See, it's important for us to realize that mourning is not bad. Mourning is an adaptive process. Mourning is how we heal from grief. And she grieves, yet with faith, with acceptance, and with her trust in God. And look, I think she reveals to us something of the battle, something of the grief, the trauma, the faith of the one who was told that he must die on the cross for the sins of the world. And the horror we feel towards what this girl went through should also be the horror that we feel for what Jesus went through. We've become so blasé about this idea that Jesus went to the cross, we forget the horror of that, particularly because he was completely innocent. He had done nothing in any way to deserve this. And in fact, as we know, it was us that he went to the cross to pay for. We forget the horror of that. 
You know, the injustice that we feel towards this girl for what she lost, her future, what might have been, should also be the horror we feel, the injustice we feel for what Jesus lost, his future, what might have been for him as well. And the admiration and awe that we feel towards this girl for what she sacrificed in faith that others might live should also be the admiration and awe we feel towards Jesus for what he sacrificed in faith that we should live. And so this morning, this brings us to the question, so what does this demand of us? I want to suggest today that what Jephthah's daughter did on the hills of Israel, Jesus did on a hill in a garden the night before he was crucified. See, I believe that it demands a Gethsemane. If we are to follow Jesus, which is the call on our lives, 2 Peter 2.21, to this we were called to follow in his steps, then we must also find ourselves at some point in our Christian walk at our Gethsemane. A time when we decide whether or not we will truly surrender and accept God's will for our lives, whatever that may be. Mark 14, 32 to 36. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed, he says, overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watching. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. How many of us here today have prayed the first part of that prayer? We've had something really difficult, something we don't want to go through, something we don't want to face. And we pray, God, you can do Anything, everything is possible for you. Take this from me. Yet what we're called to do is to finish that prayer and say, yet your will be done, not mine. And so I'm here this morning to ask you, will you surrender your rights to the Lord, to his call on your life, your rights to a long life, your rights to success on your terms, your rights even maybe to marry or whatever it is that you're facing next, your right to keep up with the Joneses. You see, the disciples all had their Gethsemane. John at the cross when he stood far off and watched Jesus be crucified and realized what this potentially meant for his own life. Thomas in the room when Jesus appeared to him after his resurrection and got him to put his hands in his side to deal with his doubts. Peter on the lakeside when Jesus asked him if he, had lo- if he loved him three times after Peter had denied him three times. Paul, in those three days alone in Damascus, when he'd been struck blind on the road to Damascus, in his encounter with the risen Christ, each follower of Christ has their Gethsemane. Each of us here, somewhere in our journey, have our Gethsemane. And we find ourselves going, am I really willing to lay down my life for this? Am I truly willing to surrender, which is what I'm called to do, to be a part of what God is doing, 
to fulfill his purpose and plan in my life? Will I surrender? Because it's so important for us to realize that it's only on the other side of Gethsemane in that surrendered life that God's plans become fully realized in us. John, this young man, on the other side of his Gethsemane, becomes foundational in the building of the church in Jerusalem. I mean, he was, scholars tell us that he was probably in his mid to late teens, and yet he became an incredible man of stature who saw that church built over the following decades. He raised up disciples, sent them out. Eventually, an exile wrote the book of Revelations. Thomas, once full of doubt, after that encounter with Jesus and following the Spirit's leading, took the gospel message to the great nation of India. They saw churches planted all the way down to the southernmost part of it before being killed in Chennai. Peter, being used by God to bring the gospel and the filling of the Spirit for the first time beyond the Jews to the Gentile world. Paul, planting churches all across the then known world, writing letters that today make up most of our New Testament, preaching the gospel, even at the very heart of the greatest superpower on the, on the planet at the time, Rome, before he too died. Incredible lives. Everything changes when we submit our lives and our futures to Jesus. You know, so many people these days suffer from anxiety. In most cases, anxiety is a fear of the future in one form or another. When we surrender, we commit the future into God's hands. And we commit ourselves to live in the present. You see, God gives us grace for today, not for tomorrow. And when tomorrow becomes today, you will find the grace for that is available then and not before. It starts with surrender.